Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. Welcome back to the FEPS Talks. Uh, today, a very, very special treat to all of you. So much excited and so focused on the uh, Future of Europe conference and the discussion about potential trajectories in which political union can develop. Today with us, Enrique Baron Crespo, president of the FEP Scientific Council, former president of the European Parliament, former chair of the S&D nowadays, but back then PES group inside of the European Parliament, mm. politician experience being a member of Parliament in Spain, a minister, a contributor to many think tanks. Enrique Baron Crespo, so great to have you with us today. It's a pleasure for me. Let's uh, start from a bit of a throwback of how we came to the point where we are today. By the time you served as the uh, president of the European Parliament, this is a moment of the most profound changes when it comes to the structure of the European Union. We say goodbye to the European communities, European Union comes in place, and you were at the core of the events uh, that led to creation of Maastricht Treaty. We look back because we look for inspiration. What would be the point uh, you would say that today we absolutely have to keep in mind looking back at those days and those experiences? The first difference is that I was elected in July 1989 and there was still the Iron Curtain. It's what we call the Berlin Wall. It was not the Berlin Wall. It was coming from the Baltic to the Mediterranean. Well, 89 was a very important year for uh, Europe and the world. The first democratic election in Poland, 95% Polish Solidarność, the events of Tiananmen in China, the end of the war in Central America, the end of the apartheid in uh, South Africa. The picture behind is uh, I am receiving Mandela in order to give him the Sakharov Prize. He didn't get it because he was in the island, in jail. There were a lot of important events that changed history, not only in Europe, but in the world. We must be aware of these movements. And there was, a, I can say, a hole in the Iron Curtain. It was the ministers of foreign affairs of Austria and Hungary that were cutting the first well, part of the wire in June. But most of the intelligence services and the analysts, and the, well, they said perhaps there will be a beginning of change in a quarter of a century. Europe at that moment was, and Central Europe was, the biggest concentration of conventional and atomic weapons in the history and in the world. Well, you must take this into account. So, it looked as this uh, order based in the bipolar world and in the in the fear of terror of atomic terror well was had a long time to to to, to survive so the big surprise was in the night of the 9th of uh, november 89 i was uh, making my official visit to italy i was uh, preparing myself in the hotel for the dinner the official dinner with the presidency of the republic of italy and uh, well i got a phone call there were not mobile phones eh? well a, an italian journalist but he is still active i think it's marco Zatarin from la stampa he said to me president the berlin wall has fallen can you make a statement and i said well let me see it has fallen in the proper sense or you are using an image and he said i don't know and he said nor do i so let let me have an hour and i went to the dinner with the president cosiga andreotti the minister of foreign affairs the michaelis we were asking each other what happened because 
nobody was prepared to see the difference. Well, I don't want to be very long, but this is a very big difference. Now we are in the European Union and uh, we are trying to crown or to finish our common house, our common building between the 27 states. At that time, we were 12. And nobody could imagine this. It's true that the reaction was quick first. It was, I remember, President Bush's father, and in the case of Felipe González, this same evening, I made a statement and I invited both President Mitterrand, he was the, the president of the European Council for this semester, and the Chancellor Kohl to address together the European Parliament. It happened two weeks after. I have explained this in my memoir. Well, there is the other picture, it's there. <laughs> and they came together and it was one of the strongest political charges event, one of the most that has lived the European Parliament. And you must not forget that almost half of the people who were there sitting in the Parliament, they had lived the Second World War. There was even an MEP that was strongly against uh, the step forward and the possibility of German unification. He was a former SS populist. <laughs> These people, they, they are not new in the Parliament. So, so in this case, we reacted to the unprecedented event. Many of us, we were wishing to overcome the situation of the Cold War, the balance of terror, but we couldn't see the way. And immediately after, I did sum up the position of the parliament in a decalogue. I said to the council that the decalogues are the first, uh, the seismosis. They are the best way to launch a political program. So I said, well, we are in favor of German unification. We are in favor of a leap forward of the community and to transform it because we were preparing the monetary union. And then I took the treaty of the European Union that was approved by the European Parliament in 1984. It was the so-called Spinelli Treaty. Citizenship was there. And then we said, well, we are in favor of the monetary union. But citizenship must go together with currency. They are the pillars of the citizenship. We are in favor of unification. We are in favor of uh, working and extending our cooperation with the former members that are under the Warsaw Pact in the area or around, uh, depending on the Soviet Union. It looks uh, like prehistory, but uh, it looks like the Jurassic Park, no? And we said if they are ready and they want to incorporate, to, to participate in our process of unity, well, we are open to talk and to, to incorporate them. I remember that, for example, I was in uh, February 90, two months after I was addressing the same, the Polish diet, and uh, later on I was in Hungary, and I remember, I, I think it was in, in Lithuania or Estonia. Yeah? So, and... Uh, then this is what the result of all this process was the Maastricht Treaty that incorporated these elements that transformed the community into the union. My position, my advice to the parliament was to concentrate in a short list, not to begin the creation like the Genesis book, the Bible, no? But what do we want? A short list, citizenship with currency, the power of co-decision for the parliament. At that time, we had the power of council or uh, opinion. Eh? We had incorporated the cooperation process, but we were not co-legislators. To participate in the election of the president of the commission and the recognition of the European political parties. There are many more changes. But it was the first time in which the parliament came 
to the what the, the Italian call the palazzo. We were not more in the street. Why? Because we could and we launched the parliament. Well, I, I propose that we launch two initiatives that are the beginning of the process that has led to the current conference, well, to the future conference on the future of Europe, and that led to the two conventions. Yeah. We speak always of one convention. No, the first convention is on the chart of fundamental rights, big success. What we did is to ask, I propose this to the European Council on behalf of the parliament, to create a interinstitutional preparatory conference in which we were sitting for the first time, 12 members of parliament, the 12 ministers of foreign affairs, the general affairs council and the commission. But it was no more, well, to talk with one or other government. It was with the council. I remember, by the way, it was at the Irish presidency. I could uh, make this proposal. They were meeting at that time in the Charlemagne building. They invited me, they were having lunch. And uh, at that time we were smoking. They invited me at the end of the of the lunch for coffee. And then uh, I made my speech and they did thank. They said thanks to me. They showed the door, you know, to, to, to go work. I said, well, thank you, but let me take coffee and one cigarette uh, like you. <laughs> yeah, that's, no, the, the, so was the relationship. We were breaking ice uh, among us. And the second initiative, and I am very proud of it, is to launch a conference of the first conference of the European Parliament with the national parliaments. It took place in November 90 in Rome, in Montecitorio, in the Camera. And I think that uh, there were some uh, presidents of parliaments that played a very important role. The decisive one was uh, President, uh, a woman, Nilda Jotti, Nilda Jotti of the Camera. Spadolini from the Senate, the president of the of the German Bundestag, and uh, well, even the president of the Assemblée Nationale Française, Laurent Fabius was at that time president. Yeah. And we met for the first time in Montecitorio with members of the parliament like Valéry Giscard d'Estaing or Giorgio Napolitano. And, them, yeah. and we drafted the first uh, draft of the Maastricht Treaty that was, well, later on elaborated and, uh, and developed by the Intergovernmental Conference. I think that this, this was a historical change in the sense of not letting all the process to Intergovernmental Conference. I do think, I, I don't want to be very long, but I think these are the, the, the major differences. So we were a community in which we were only talking about the market. There was no chart of fundamental rights. There was not a, a declaration like in the in the three first articles of the Lisbon Treaty. It was uh, it was part of the constitutional treaty that we could save with the principles, the values, and the and the aims, no, of, of the union. But uh, well, this community of twelve, that was an internal market. Well, with the so we were fighting for a social dimension and for uh, for a strengthening. I think it made. A, this great leap that transformed it in the European Union. But, uh, um, I don't want to be... No, of course not. This is absolutely fascinating because uh, um, you describe in just few words what has been a historical turn for Europe and uh, the context in which, of course, it took courage, but also a vision uh, to steer the European Union uh, 
beginnings and the European Union in the direction, as you said, that would be not only about economic prosperity, but also about the values, about the citizenship, about democratic participation. But then, you know, the, uh, you describe yourself, Maastricht Treaty, as this uh, incredible leap forward. Uh, well, there is, you know, forgive me for saying that uh, there is quite a lot of criticism about Maastricht deficiencies. And, you know, we see European Union embarking almost instantly after Maastricht Treaty into a discussion about the Treaty of Amsterdam and arriving to Nice and all the controversies up to the point uh, for the call of the convention. A lot of disagreements and one could say a lot of national interest put forward. When thinking back about uh, those times, I mean, you could say a lot of back and forth, but effectively still moving the European Union forward, right? There has been a lot of criticism. Democracy is built on criticism. But I think there is a difference. It's uh, constructive criticism and uh, well, destructive criticism. I, I was critical on the result of the Maastricht Treaty. And if you look to the speech and the debate of President Delors in the parliament the day after, he was critical too. He said, no, we were not thinking that it was the end of history. No, we were aware of the fact that we had made this big leap forward, but there were uh, many shortcomings. And, uh, and it was, there were many aspects that were only suggested or, or routed, for example, and it was not possible for the difference between the, the, the many states. One of them was to accept a common economic policy with a monetary policy. It was the problem of the, the crisis that are asymmetric crises. We knew it, but it's very different to debate this at academic level. You can take distance. And when you are in the middle of a volcanic change of, of plates in the world, so. For example, nobody knew how many tanks of the Soviet Union that were based in Germany were working. Perhaps one knew it. Putin was there in Dresden, in the intelligence. No? So it was very important because this is a very easy question. No? What is important looking back to the trajectory every four years, there is a new treaty. What does it mean? It means we are not making gospels. We are trying a new experience without president in history. In the case of the United States, they were former colonies that were new in history. We are creating a common European Union among the countries that have fought each other with its neighbor or with most of them all along history. I remember the there is a very famous speech of President Mitterrand in 95 in the parliament it was his other speech, Farewell to Life. And he said, we are now 15 countries in the Union. France has made war to all of them, with the exception of Denmark. And I do not know why. And he added, this is nationalism, and nationalism is the war. So every four years, we have been making new treaties, but not making new treaties from scratch but trying to add and to adapt beginning with our experience, our common experience. So when you look to the cathedrals, it's the most uh, representative building of Europe, uh, European history. Cathedrals, they have taken normally centuries to be built up with different architects, different bricklayers, and with different styles. Even, for example, in my country, 
there are very beautiful cathedrals that were former mosques. Well, I accept uh, and I participate in the criticism, but all of my life, I have been trying to build with a critical approach. And looking back after uh, 30 years, when you compare Europe, 89, split with the theater of the most, the biggest concentration of weapons in history, with a big superpower in, in Europe, but we were among the, the two big superpowers. We have built a European Union with a common currency, with shared values, and we are proud of them and we have declared them. There are many shortcomings. Okay, let's go on and work. Why not? Exactly. And that was uh, the inspiration also for the uh, convention. You mentioned the innovation in the institutional politics and in the way of uh, yeah. negotiating the steps forward. Yeah. Um, that's the time when uh, you were uh, heading the uh, socialist group in the European Parliament, uh, where we gear up uh, uh, for the convention that today I'm bringing into the conversation because it remains a reference point. Of course, we know that constitutional treaty did not survive the process of referenda, we know that. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there is still quite a lot of inspiration from the convention as such, right? Even nowadays. I like always to mention the two conventions because we, we only speak of, of the second convention. The first convention that was in parallel to the Nice Treaty, the Nice Treaty was a failure. The first convention was very important because when we are talking about citizenship, the definition of the citizenship and the, and the values of citizenship are in this chart of fundamental rights. And I can assure you, because I was uh, very active in the process, in my different, uh, well, reincarnations, no? uh, political reincarnation. I can assure you that, for example, there were countries clearly opposed to consider that the chart of fundamental rights had to be binding. The first one were the British. The second one were the Polish. Because I remember the, the debate in, the, in, in, in Lisbon with the presidency, because it took seven years, eh? against uh, values and so on, but it's very important. And uh, about the, the convention and the, the referenda. Well, if you take a decision to all of us, we, well, the intergovernmental conference, after debating with the parliament and the, participating in the commission, we are sovereign states. We take together a decision. And then, according to our own uh, laws and to our own constitutions, we are launching a process of ratification of uh, several years with different methods. This is a Russian roulette. This is not a, a process of uh, ratification. So I, I have played it, but I think it's, it's very difficult to, to get it. That is, if you took the decision, you must do it, take the decision at the same time. Why? Because, for example, there is an interference of the domestic political situation with uh, Europe. And there is the risk of populism. I, I was in the campaign of referendum in, in France, for example. It was the history, a very demagogic one of the Polish plumber. I said, the problem is not the Polish plumber. The problem all over Europe is to find the plumber, normally. This is not pure nonsense. It's pure nonsense. And it, this is... This is a very demagogic and very risky. So, uh, well, the result was for many reasons. But when you look to the referenda that had taken place, more people adding the people who had voted in Spain, Luxembourg, France, and uh, Holland, 
where there were more people in favor than against. Well, now, now we have made, because nobody speaks about the treaty, is the, the fiscal compact. It's not a, we must integrate the fiscal compact. I'm asking that they, as a point in the agenda in the Conference for the Future of Europe to try to adapt democratically all the, especially the compact fiscal, that are not made with the community method, I would say federal method, and are in force and have been decisive in, uh, in the first crisis. But there is a, a very important element, is the first uh, treaty in European history that has been ratified with two-thirds of the votes in favor of the member countries. You know what does uh, come this two-thirds figure, the ratification of the Philadelphia Convention. I am in favor of uh, putting this in the treaties. I think that that would uh, already go as classified as uh, quite of a r- r- radical uh, clause uh, for the treaties. Uh, but since you've already, because uh, now we've been discussing, of course, the dynamics of the 1990s, the big geopolitical changes, uh, the impulses that uh, uh, also fed into the institutional reform into establishing mm-hmm. union. Then we moved on to discussing 1990s and beginning of 2000s, the uh, convention, uh, the second convention, as you correctly said, um, the enlargement uh, takes place. And then the union, of course, arrives on one side to this uh, uh, pause, uh, the moment of dialogue with the citizens, the discussion about uh, connecting back to the ground uh, and the Lisbon Treaty. Um, But the midst of the last 10 years is, again, lots of criticism about uh, Europe, uh, something that only recently started changing. Because if you look at the statistics and polls presented just now, uh, Europeans are no longer ambiguous about Europe. They believe that Europe can deliver. They believe that Europe can deliver uh, in terms of recovery, which would make the current attempt on the future of Europe conference really historical and important. Nevertheless, uh, you know, we are still waiting. We are still waiting for the final, final decision. And there is a lot of doubts. How would you describe the context and what do you think should be done in order for this conference actually to deliver the one that we have at hand? First, let come be back to, to, to the reality because we are all, all, always speaking about criticism. But the turnover of the last European elections has been 10 points higher. So people, they criticize, but they are not crazy. I say always in a very clear example, people in the countries in which there is the euro don't burn the banknotes on the street. Well, there was only a case in, in, in Athens, they were they were burning photocopies. <laughs> Machines can do very well this. But people have accepted euro. People consider when you ask, uh, not only not only the eurobarometer, but uh, the, the the result of the elections, people, they vote more. And they say, do you think that, uh, for example, you can solve your social problems or your economic problems better with the European Union or out of the European Union? They are very clearly in favor because they realize that in this world, the European Union plays a role of shield too. And now we are living with the pandemic. And I think it's, it's, it's right to criticize. But the criticisms are not against the policy that has begun to follow the, the Commission and the Union in the sense of investing very heavily, not only going to the market, eh? investing very heavily in the developments of, uh, of the vaccines. 
But at the same time, you can imagine what would be this kind of, of uh, black market uh, situation that we have lived with the Basques. And I do think we are unhappy because, well, most of us, we want to be vaccinated. But now there are 130 counties in the world that have got no, not a single vaccine. We are trying to distribute them. We have the same, more or less the same rhythm as uh, others that had a worse situation than us. So we have to improve. But the criticism is to say, well, there are failures and problems. So, okay, it's, it's good. It, it helps. But this is not an alternative. And I have learned in my political life to be, I, I say for myself as a a person in the, has been in, in public service, because this uh, politics must be public service. So I, I am, uh, at the same time, architect and bricklayer. This is my view. Because uh, indeed, uh, I mean, we do see uh, the change of attitudes. You've mentioned the European elections, uh, but also, uh, you know, uh, you mentioned Eurobarometer. You mentioned there are other studies like Parlometer is clearly showing that the Europeans are much more aware, much more engaged and so on. And mm-hmm. here, the civil society, especially you know, awaiting a Future of Europe conference to begin, is quite worried that it is just about to become an institutional process. Would you say that those worries are or do we indeed have a chance for, you know, very inclusive participatory process ahead of us? Well, I have written uh, for the Spanish European movement in a collective book that I don't, I don't know, I think it's in the FEPS, but I can send it to you, but in Spanish, to win the leap forward. And I explain all the process that I have lived and how we have been upgrading the democratic participation in the process since the beginning, since the, the Schumann Declaration, not only since Maastricht. No? My view is, because now, well, there is the debate among the members of the council and so on. I think that the proposal is a, a kind of trinity, inclusive and participatory. European democracy, according to the treaties, is a representative democracy and a participatory democracy. Clearly, when you look to the treaties, the representative democracy is not only our tradition, but uh, is the, the way to parti- make people participate in a union of almost 500 million people. But uh, I appreciate and I think it's important participatory democracy with the civil society. But the point is that uh, there is not an alternative between representative democracy and participatory democracy. I'm paying a lot of attention to the process because there is a view that says, no, 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 we must have uh, a kind of civil society. Well, if you want a humble definition of uh, civil society, civil society is all the society that is not military. And it's very rich to have uh, civil society. My experience, for example, in the conventions is in the last convention, in the Constitutional Convention, we had more than a thousand organizations at European level participating and making the representations, no? Normally, organizations of civil societies, they are a single item, for example, on uh, an aspect of uh, ecology or uh, equality of uh, gender. This is very important, but this is a part of the, the whole process. And moreover, you cannot let put aside, not the European Parliament, but all the national parliaments, because at the end of the day, they are the representation of, uh, of the people too. They, they are not, uh, no. Uh, there are some, some people who think, no, 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 no. We, we, they are uh, this, this kind of uh, structure that don't, don't play a role anymore. No, 
And then there is a, one more difference with, uh, with uh, the experience I lived in Maastricht. There is, since uh, the summer of last year, there is a agreement in the council with the proposal of the commission and the parliament uh, agrees to transform in a substantial way our union. What does it mean? When you double the budget, when you begin with mutualization, when you are extending the, the capacity of, uh, and, the, and the ability of the, of the commission in order to, to, to make this, when you are debating and introducing forms of uh, own taxation, there is food for thought for one or several conventions. I add one point that I think is not very... Well, some people look at me as a little strange person when I say this. I agree fully with uh, the Schumann Declaration is that at the end of the process, what we, what we are building, not the utopia, what we are building is an European Federation. Jacques Delors spoke of uh, Fédération d'État Nation, but I do think that uh, in this moment, for example, we have in the European Union, and this is a very interesting debate, you know, it's a Hamiltonian moment. We have a monetary union that is pure federal. The system of the central banks with the European Central Bank managed and the is a pure federal union. The foreign affairs policy is trying to become a little more in not so much intergovernmental because it paralyzes so this is a very interesting point. And I would, I would suggest that now we have many points. The biggest points of the agenda are already on the table. I would be in favor of concentrating on them and not trying to begin uh, from the scratch a, a new world to discover. One more point, when you are talking, or when we are talking, no, of adding citizenship, I always come back to the, to the charter. But there is a point, is, and this is very important, is one of the main items that have been decided last year, and now we have to implement them, and this is part of the conferences, the next generation funds. This is not only a talking shop. This is how we can prepare the way for the young people and from the, the citizens that have to live in Europe in the future. And this is part of the intergovernmental intergenerational solidarity that is in Article 3, don't forget this, of the Lisbon Treaty. I think that this sets very much of the sort of benchmarks of deliveries, not only for now, uh, but also for all those who say future is now and this is where we make, we strike the point, we make sure that the European Union is no longer facing existential question, is clear about what it is to deliver now and in the years to come. So for the last, last question, I have to ask you, social democratic thinking as we are. No problem. um, Maastricht Treaty is the beginning, as you say, of the European parties. Um, I mean, I do remember having interviewed you for a different context when you explained the beginning of the European uh, parties, uh, how difficult, but also what ways led to establishment of uh, those organizations who built, of course, on the confederations that existed before. Uh, But now also the European Parliament, parallel to discussion about the future of Europe, is taking on the question about the future of the Euro parties. Uh, From a perspective of a person who was at their birth uh, by the Maastricht Treaty uh, just those years before uh, and looking into the future, 
what do you think would be essential to make those organizations be even better equipped uh, when it comes to uh, improving and helping to strengthen the union and the European political system? Well, good question. I can tell you how we did begin the European political parties. We were drafting for the interinstitutional, like the, the so-called chip, is, uh, because in English it doesn't sound well. But the so-called interinstitutional preparatory conference, we drafted a paper, a declaration that is is, is public. And at that time, I had a, well an, an apartment in Brussels. I invited the three heads of the oldest uh, European families, not parties. All three were Belgians. Wilfred Martens, at that time he was uh, the Prime Minister of uh, Belgium. Guy Spitals for the Union of Socialists. And Martens was for the, at that time it was the, the, the Christian Democrats. And Willy de Klerk for the Liberals. We had lunch. We discussed this uh, draft. As leaders of the European political families, they signed the draft, the letter. We sent it to, to the presidency. I think it was at the end, not the, I'm not sure it was, uh, if it was the, the Luxembourg or the, the Netherlands presidency. It was uh, at the end. And I got a last phone call from uh, Prime Minister of uh, Holland, of uh, the Netherlands, Ruth Lubbers. He was Christian Democrat. The day before, I had to make my speech in Maastricht, in the council. We were negotiating. I said, well, the, the last two conditions were the European political parties and the main, and the other one was the, the co-decision. And <laughs> he told me, I was asking you to put the recognition of the European political parties on the table. In your speech, I said, well, no problem. I'm delighted. And the co-decision, he said, well, uh, how can we... Do? And then we agreed that... Uh, it had to go along with the with the budgetary procedure. And then it was created a, a very typical European expression. It was defined as a negative assent procedure. Negative assent, well, this is how we will do it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, on the European political parties, well, I would be very careful in order to give uh, advice now. When I have seen that... Uh, in a very difficult moment for Europe, President von der Leyen was elected in the first uh, round with uh, a part of uh, the basic political families not voting for her. Very interesting. Some of them had declared that they wouldn't vote. The delegations, uh, German and others, uh, delegations in the socialists, uh, some liberals and some uh, so-called submarines uh, in, in, in the EPP. Nobody knows where, and she was elected with uh, at the end with the votes of uh, Orban people and the and Cinque Stelle and five stars. So I am in favor of trying to consolidate European political families, not just as a loose coalition sometimes, but I do think that looking to the working of the European Parliament, I don't want to comment on the last years. But uh, looking to the roll call votes, the degree of discipline that is uh, working in the European Parliament is more or less at the level of the US Congress. I am in favor of strengthening them, uh, but as far as I have been in the creation of the baby and working in the, in, in the groups, so I try to be very careful in order to, 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 to speak about a revolution. But I think that they are a column 
a fundamental basement of uh, democracy in Europe. We, we criticize them, we have to live and to support them. And with that, I couldn't imagine a better closing. Enrique Baron Crespo, president of the FEP Scientific Council, has been today with us for what I believe has been an absolutely fascinating, instructive journey with a lot of impulses uh, for the Future of Europe conference. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Mr. President, for having joined pleasure. us today. Um, and for everyone, uh, do send us comments. We will be very happy to engage in the conversation and see how we can pursue the avenues for the future together. At your disposal. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.